Welcome to the Sleep Charming Podcast, the podcast where I help you drift off for a good night's sleep or simply take a moment to relax. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review or a rating. So sit back, take a deep breath, and let me read you an old story. Hail Immortal Rome. This cry, breaking from the lips of a race that had carried the imperial eagles from the northern shores of Europe to Asia and Africa, was no mere patriotic catchword. It was the expression of a belief that, though humanity must die and personal ambitions fade away, yet Rome herself was eternal and unconquerable, and what was wrote in her name would outlast the ages. In the modern world, it is sometimes necessary to remind people of their citizenship, but the Roman never forgot the greatness of his inheritance. When St Paul, bound with tongs and contemned to be scourged, declared, I am Roman born, the captain of the guard, who had only gained his citizenship by paying a large sum of money, was afraid of the prisoner whom he had laid hands on without a trial. To be a Roman, however apparently poor and defenceless, was to walk the earth protected by a shield that none might set aside save a great peril. Not to be a Roman, however rich or of high standing, was to pass in Roman eyes as a barbarian, a creature of altogether inferior quality and repute. Be it thine, O Roman, says Virgil, the greatest of Latin poets, to govern the nations with thy imperial rule. And such indeed was felt by Romans to be the destiny of their race. Stretching on the west through Spain and Gaul to the Atlantic, the vast sea of darkness beyond, which according to popular belief, the earth dropped suddenly into nothingness. The outposts of the empire in the east looked across the plains of Mesopotamia towards Persia and the kingdoms of Central Asia. Babylon, the Wanderers, Syria and Palestine, Egypt, the kingdom of the pharaohs, Carthage, the queen of Mediterranean commerce, all were now Roman provinces, their luster dimmed by a glory greater than they had ever known. The Mediterranean, once a battleground of rival powers, had become an imperial lake, the high road of the grain ships that sailed perpetually from Spain and Egypt to feed the central market of the world. For Rome, like England today, was quite unable to satisfy her population from home cornfields. The fleets that brought the necessaries of life convoyed also shiploads of oriental luxuries. Silks, jewels and perfumes transported from Ceylon and India into trading sloops to the shores of the Red Sea, and thence by caravans of camels to the port of Alexandria. Other trade routes, other than the Mediterranean, were the vast network of roads that, like the threads of a spider web, kept every part of the empire, however remote, in touch with the centre from which their common fate was spun. At intervals of six miles were post houses, provided each with forty or more horses that imperial messengers, speeding to or from the capital, with important news, might dismount and mount again at different stages. 
hastening on their way with undiminished speed. How firm and well made were their roads we know today, when, after the lapse of nearly 19 centuries of traffic, we use and praise them still. They hold in their strong foundations one secret of their maker's greatness, that the Romans brought to his handiwork and thoroughness inspired by vision, not merely of something that should last a few years or even his lifetime, but that should endure like the city he believed eternal. It was the boast of Augustus, 27 BC, AD 14, the first of the Roman emperors, that he had found his capital of brick and left it marble, and his tradition as an architect passed to his successors. There are few parts of what was once the Roman Empire that possesses no trace today of massive aqueduct or forum, of public baths or stately colonnades. In Rome itself, the Colosseum, the scene of many a martyr's death and gladiator's struggle, as at Nîmes in southern France, a provincial amphitheatre, the aqueduct of Segovia in Spain, the baths in England that have made and named a town, the walls that mark the outposts of the empire, all are the witnesses of a genius that dared to plan greatly, nor spared expense or labour in carrying out its designs. Those who have visited the border country between England and Scotland know the Emperor Hadrian's Wall, 20 feet high by 7 feet broad, constructed to keep out the fierce Picts and Scots from this, the most northern of his possessions. Those of the enemy that scaled to the top would find themselves faced by a ditch and a further wall bristling with spears. While the legions flashed their summons for reinforcements from guardhouse to guardhouse, along the 70 miles of massive barrier. All that human labour could do had made the position impregnable. A scheme of fortifications was also attempted in Central Europe, along the lines of the Rhine and Danube. These rivers provided the third of the imperial trade routes, and it is well remembered to them in this context, for their importance as highways lasted right through the Roman and medieval into modern times. Railways have altered the face of Europe, they have cut through her waste places and turned them into thriving centres of industry. They have looped up her mines and ports and tunnelled her mountains. There is hardly a corner of any land where they have not penetrated. And the change they have made is so vast that it is often difficult to imagine a world before their invention. In Roman times, in neighbourhoods where the sea was remote and road traffic slow and inconvenient, there only remain the earliest of all means of transport, the rivers. The Rhine and the Danube, one flowing northwest and the other southeast, both neither too swift nor sluggish for navigation, were the natural main highroads of Central Europe. They were also an obvious barrier between the Empire and barbarian tribes. To connect the Rhine and Danube at their sources by a massive wall, to establish forts with strong garrisons at every port where these rivers could easily be forded. Such were the precautions by which wise emperors planned to shut in Rome's civilization and to keep out all who would lay violent hands upon it. The Emperor Augustus left a warning to his successors that they should be content with these natural boundaries, lest in pushing forward to increase their territory, they should in reality weaken their position. 
It's easy to agree with his views centuries after, when we know that the defences of the empire, pushed ever forward, snapped at the finish like an elastic band. But the average Roman of imperial days believed his nation equal to any strain. It was a boast of the army that Roman banners never retreated. If then a tribe of barbarians were to succeed in fording the Danube and in surprising some outpost fort, the legions sent to punish them would not clamour merely just to exact vengeance and return home, but to conquer and to add the territory to the empire. In the end of swamps or forest land, the clamour might be checked. But where there was pasturage or good agricultural soil, it would be almost irresistible. Immigrants from crowded Italy would demand to leave to form a colony. Traders would hasten in their footsteps and soon another responsibility of land and lives. Perhaps with no natural protection of a river, sea or mountains would be added to Rome's burden of government. Such was the futile province of Dacia, north of the Danube, a notable gain in territory, but yet a future source of weakness. At the head of the empire stood the emperor Caesar Augustus, the commander-in-chief of the army, the supreme authority in the state, the fountain of justice, a god before whose altar every loyal Roman must burn incense and bow the knee in reverence. It was a great change from the old days when Rome was a republic and her senate, or council of leading citizens, had been responsible to the rest of the people for their good or bad government. The historian Tacitus, looking back from imperial days with a sigh of regret, says that in happy age man could speak what was in his mind without fear of his neighbours, and draws the contrast with his own time when the emperor's spies wormed their way into house and tavern, paid to betray those about them to prison or death for some chance word or incautious action. Yet Rome, by her conquests, had brought on herself the tyranny of the empire. It's comparatively easy to rule a small city well, where fraud and self-seeking can be quickly detected. But when Rome began to extend her boundaries and to employ more people in the work of government, unscrupulous politicians appeared. These built up private fortunes during their term of office. They became senators, and the Senate ceased to represent the will of the people and began to govern in the interest of a small group of wealthy men. Members of their families became governors of provinces, first in Italy and then in conquest continued, across the mountains in Gaul and Spain and beyond the seas in Egypt and Asia Minor. Except in name, senators and governors ceased to be simple citizens and lived as princes, with officials and servants ready to carry out their slightest wish. Perhaps it may seem odd that Roman people, once so fond of liberty that they had driven into exile the kings who oppressed them, should afterwards let themselves be bullied or neglected by a hundred petty tyrants. But in truth, the people had changed, even more than the class of patricians to whom they found themselves in bondage. No longer pure Roman or Latin, but through conquest and intermarriage of every race. Few amongst the men and women crowding the streets of Rome remembered or reverenced the traditions of her early days. Rome stood for military glory, luxury, culture, at her best for even-handed justice. 
but no longer for an ideal of liberty. If national pride was satisfied and adequate food and amusement provided, the Roman populace was content to be ruled from above and hailed rival senators as masters, according to the extent of their promises and success. A failure to fulfil such promises, resulting in a lost campaign or a death of corn, would throw the military tyrant of the moment from his pedestal, but only to set up another in his place. It was an easy transition from the rule of a corrupt senate to that of an autocrat. Better one tyrant than many was the attitude of mind of the average citizen towards Octavius Caesar, when under the title of Augustus he gathered to himself the supreme command over army and state, and so became the first of the emperors. Had he been a tactless man and sheltered his triumph from the seven hills, he would have probably fallen victim to an assassin's knife, but he skilfully disguised his authority and posed as being only the first magistrate of the state. Under his guiding hand, the Senate was reformed, and its outward dignity rather increased than shorn. Augustus could issue his own edicts or commands independently of the Senate's consent, but he more frequently preferred to lay his measures before it, and to let them reach the public as a senatorial decree. In this he ran no risk for the senators, impressive figures in the eyes of the ordinary citizen, were really puppets of his creation. At any minute he could cast them away. His fellow magistrates were equally at his mercy. For in his hands alone rested the supreme military command, the imperium from which the title imperator, or emperor, was derived. At first he accepted the office only for ten years, but at the end of that time, resigning it to a submissive senate, he received it again amid shouts of popular joy. The tyranny of Augustus had proved a blessing. Instead of corps of troops raised here and there in different provinces by governors at war with another, and thus divided in their allegiance, they had begun to develop a disciplined army whose legions were enrolled, paid, and dismissed in the name of the all-powerful Caesar, and who therefore obeyed his commands rather than those of their immediate captains. The same system of centering all authority in one absolute ruler was followed in the civil government. Governors of provinces, once petty rulers, became merely servants of the state. Caesar sent them from Rome, he appointed the officials under them, he paid them their salaries, and to him they must give an account of their stewardship. If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Such was the threat that induced Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, in the reign of Tiberius, to condemn the death of a man he knew to be innocent of crime. This is but one of many stories that show the dread of the emperor's name in Rome's far distant provinces. Governors, military commanders, judges, tax collectors, all the vast army of officials who bore the responsibility of government on their shoulders had an ultimate appeal from their decisions to Caesar, and were exalted by his smile or trembled at his frown. It's not a modern notion of a good government, this complete power vested in one man, but Rome, nearly 2,000 years ago, was content that a master should rule her, so long as he would guarantee prosperity and peace at home. This under the early Caesars was at least secured. Two fleets patrolled the Mediterranean, 
but their vigilance was not needed, save for the occasional brush with pirates. Naught but storms distributed her waters. The legions on her frontiers, whether in Syria or Egypt, or along the Rhine or Danube, kept the barbarians at bay until Rome ceased to think of war as a trade to which every man might one day be called. It was a profession left to the few, the many, content to pay the taxes required by the state and to devote themselves to a civilian life. To one would fall the management of a large estate, another would stand for election to a government office, a third would become a lawyer or a judge, others would keep shops or taverns and work as hired labourers, while below these again would be the class of slaves, whether prisoners of war sold in marketplace or citizens deprived of their freedom for crime or debt. In Rome itself was a large population, living in uncomfortable lodging houses, very like the slum tenants of a modern city. Some of the inhabitants would be engaged in casual labour, some idle, but when the empire was at its zenith, lavish gifts of corn from the government stood between his otherwise destitute population and starvation. It crowded the streets to see Caesar pass, threw flowers on his chariot and hailed him as emperor and god, and in return he bestowed on it food and amusements. The huge amphitheatres of Rome and her provinces were built to satisfy the public desire for pageantry and sport, and because life was held cheap, and for all his boasted civilizations, the Roman was often a savage at heart. He would spend his holidays watching gladiators fall in a mortal struggle. We about to die salute thee. With these words, the victims of an emperor's lust for bloodshed bent the knee before the imperial throne, and at Caesar's nod passed to slay or be slain. The emperor's scepter did not bring mercy, but order, justice, and prosperity above the ordinary standard of the age.